Deus Ex is a game where play style matters. How you play determines your experience. So in other words, letting players decide how to play, finding their fun, playing the way they wanted to, to become the author of their own unique experience. and welcome back to the Foodie Dashi podcast. I'm Nicholas. I'm here with Lauren, who is, I don't know, just beaming with anticipation and excitement today. I am beaming with anticipation <laughs> and excitement. It is currently super rainy and foggy in this wonderful world of San Francisco, and someone has to be the little ray of sunshine. Because that is true. So um, in our previous episodes, we dived really deeply into the, the question of world building. And so I'm actually going to throw things over to Lauren pretty quickly because she also sort of like was the driving force behind those episodes as well. Because today we're going to talk about immersion. And the reason why is because I'm usually the one who edits the episodes. And quite a few times in the past mo couple of months, We've always deferred the question of like, what is immersion? How does it work? Like, what do people consider immersion to be? And we're all like, yeah. So it's usually me going, yeah, I hate the concept of immersion, but we're not going to talk about that. <laughs> and so today I'm going to both hate the concept of immersion and we're going to talk about it. So Lauren, lay down the parameters for our good listeners. So that way they understand like where we're coming from. Yes. All right. Well, thank you for that lovely introduction, Nicholas, because I tend to also shy away from this topic because, quite frankly, it's a hard topic. Yes. And as a neurodivergent who already has to deal with hard topics in the workplace, I don't want to <laughs> talk about hard topics. I want to talk about fun things. Um, so, but the point of that, right, uh, when I say this is a hard topic, right, this is a fun topic, that actually is me constructing, right, a mental picture of how I interact with the world. Yes. And that is, right, one of the tenets of world building, which is how does your world, right, react to the player? And yep. how do you as a developer, what are you showing within that world? Whether it's set dressing, environmental storytelling, maybe it's as simple as dialogue, right? Someone going like, hey, did you see like that every bush has a rupee? Like that's <laughs> super, that is rule building, right? Because yeah, now you're going to destroy yes, every single bush, right? And suddenly every bush becomes a target. Um, or it's just as simple as like you mine a rock and you get rock or stone or iron from it, right? Yeah. That's a way of world building and mechanics. Now I'm bringing up all of these weird kind of like references to kind of start us over with this topic of immersion because it occurred to me that in order to build a very um, uh, realistic, is not the word, relatable, excuse me, in order to build a relatable world for your player to yeah. go inside of that experience and feel like they are a part of a complete game schema to yep. use now an academic term, yep. we need to recognize that the purpose of really solid world building is to create an immersive experience. 
And for me, this is something that when Nicholas was re-editing these episodes and going, hey, Lauren, we should finally talk about immersion because you keep mentioning it. (laughs) Um, I was like, you're right. So for the purpose of this episode today, we really want to go into like that mythos of immersion. Like what is and isn't immersion and maybe why what we've been thinking of as immersive experiences are different for everyone. And second, I also want to kind of talk about the ways developers try to increase immersion, whether that's through mechanics, through a system, or through, right, in a very straightforward way, the storytelling, right? That's something that uh, is very immediate. And it's because the term world building comes from, right, novels and from film in terms of building a world, right, in RPGs, like we've mentioned that. And then we're going to end with what I hope is a very clearly articulated argument about why flow is immersion, but also trying to breaking down the barrier for that flow and immersion right, are not actually two concepts, even though a lot of times in media and critics and gamers, right, will talk about this is an experience where I just experienced flow. Oh, but it's not immersive. And to me, that just does not sit well with me. So Nicholas, you and I were talking briefly before this episode about that first point, mythos of immersion. Do you want to kind of go into that? And hopefully let's create that lovely thing we call a spectrum when we talk (laughs) about immersion for our listeners today. Okay, so it's it's worth noting that like first uh, first point, and this is something that Lauren reminded me of, is that you can't really sort of like generalize what sort of people broadly speaking mean when they say immersion, because it definitely seems like when a game when a game dev says immersion, they mean something different from what a critic says immersion, and they mean something different from when like you know players shouting on forums say immersion. And the reason why this is important is because when you're or even you can think of this as like a a divide, like people who are sort of on the consuming slash receiving end of immersion versus people who are on like the production end of immersion. People on the production end of immersion tend to actually overemphasize systems, rule sets, and like setting mechanics up in such a way where they're like, in the past I've described one of the things that I really like about, say, grand strategy games is that it's sort of like a it's like a it's like a sandbox. It's a sandbox in the sense of like you're given a set of toys and you're given sort of this like environment in which to play. Like you're given tools and then you can do things with them. And what you choose to do with them isn't necessarily like overly predetermined by the design of the game. And that's the way actually that devs tend to look at it. But the thing is, from the perspective of a player, and I'm also, you know, Lauren is also a player. I'm a player, even though, you know, these these categories are also fungible because even devs are players in a certain sense. But for, when you're on the playing side of this, it's interesting to note how, like, <laughs> what is considered to be an immersive game is where all of those systems that sort of create the immersive experience are invisible to the player. In other words, that's the ideal that they tend to be striving for, because there is this notion that you want, as a dev, you want the game to sort of simulate some kind of experience as effectively as possible. And I say simulate because it's not trying to be a real life experience, but it's trying to absorb you or engage you in such a way that, you know, things in your life often do. And that is sort of classically how like the industry has under and also some critics have understood the concept of immersion, which I have in the past, of course, on many occasions noted my displeasure with for the following reasons. Really just one big reason. And and in this, I should actually give a, a good sh- a big shout out to uh, one of our Patreon subscribers, Allison, who kind of forced me to like 
be more clear about this distinction. And so the, the way I put it in the conversation that we had was, oh, and by the way, like, you know, you can hop on to like pay $15 a month and you can do exactly the same thing if you want. <laughs> anyway, so I, I presented it this way. It's like, okay, if you're playing a game like Bioshock and if you're playing a game like Dorf Romantic, if you're not familiar with Dorf Romantic, it's a tile-based game where you place tiles to build out like, you know, a territory that's, you know, some has trees, some has... Uh, you know, buildings, fields, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. They're very, very different games. But both can be described as immersive. Though for me personally, one is far more immersive than the other. And strangely enough, the Dorf Romantic side of the equation is more immersive for me. And part of the reason for that is that whenever I personally, given my tendencies, am playing first-person games, maybe because I'm writing a book about it, I tend to have a kind of like emotional and intellectual distance from them. I'm always regarding them analytically. I'm always trying to see how they work, even though they're trying to conceal how they work from me. Whereas when I'm playing a game or even like a tower defense game, like, you know, Plants vs. Zombies or my recent fave, Isle of Arrows, um, I can just get, I just, I kind of, I can zone out. Like once the, like the game mechanics and I understand how everything works, like I can do a given like run and I can just sort of like plop things down, watch the little arrows, kill the little orcs that are coming towards me and be like, oh yeah, that's cool. To me, that's more immersive. But the thing is like, so then I had to ask myself, okay, what is that difference? And the conclusion that sort of like in conversation with Lauren that we came to was that there are ways in which immersion actually sort of speaks to or engages with particular play styles. And if the play style is different, then the way you like create an immersive environment in game also has to be different. Yeah. And that's, I think like, that's the breaking down of this classical definition of immersion to kind of what more I hope is more of like what a postmodern definition of immersion, I guess. Or maybe because just a more like expanded, just a more more, expanded yeah. uh, definition. Because I yeah. think that like when we talk about classical definitions, what we're talking about is a definition in which the culture and community of a critical, right, kind of acclaim journalism, as yeah. well as the developers themselves talked about to collectively create a definition, right? This is kind of a cultural definition. Yeah. But it's kind of like saying the classical definition of a novel is a book and a series of events that like, <laughs> does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just yeah, so yeah, that yeah. we can all kind of like laugh about it. So you understand when I say the classical definition of immersion is that start of the spectrum of like a hyper-realistic environment where all of the systems and tutorials and kind of engagement of the mechanics are invisible. And one of like the predecessors of that type of immersive game was Half-Life 2, right? But was also a lot of other right first-person shooters where like things weren't introduced to you in terms of a, say, tutorial, right? Yeah. Or like a step-by-step -step guide, but plopped you sort of, right, in media res into an experience, kind of like the original Deus Ex, where then you were just assumed to know what to do, right? And yeah. A part of that was honestly derived from hardware and engineering complications. <laughs> okay. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And the other part of it was these were the cutting edge of graphics at the time. Now, Half-Life 2 being much more cutting edge than, say, the original Deus Ex, but yeah. only in terms of, right, I think the, the years between them. Okay. Yeah. Deus Ex being one of the first uh, third, well, not third, first person 3D. It is first person, yeah. Yeah, like first person 3D graphics. That's what I'm trying to say, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's um, it's yeah, it's complicated because yeah. like uh, the history of first person games is itself a little weird. And also like depending on who you ask, like if you, like Warren Spector has a like who is the 
actually the, the creative juice behind deus ex like he has his own kind of like history of immersion and where it comes from yeah so (laughs) no this is actually great because not to get into a tangent of first person games in general which i know we'll do a series on because of (laughs) right different secret things book. (laughs) yes um (laughs) the big book um so we will get into that but i want to say like to tie into war inspector as the creative juice not the developer of that experience because games are a collective individual yes they are and he's the first to acknowledge that yeah yeah um, and so he as a developer, right, when you ask a lot of game developers for this classical definition, the critics and journalists asking these questions are not asking the questions of what is immersion to an engineer. They're asking it of the story directors or the narrative writers yeah. or the artists, right? The concept yeah. artists. How did you try to create a realistic world for your players? Yeah. How did the story lend itself to the creative visionaries, right? To the people that are living in the sky. And there's nothing wrong with living in the sky. But what I'm saying is the creative visionary is going to give you a different answer, critics and journalists, than the engineer, yeah. right? Or such someone who is really into the mechanics of an experience. Yes. And so for me, the classical definition of immersion, unfortunately, has derived from our natural tendency to tell stories as humans, which is, right, how is this creating an immersive experience? Wow, look at these high-end graphics. Like, I'm a very visual human, right? All humans, like, we see, we hear, everything is so immersive because we feel it's simulated. And while that classical definition does hold some merit, all right, I would like us to remember that immersion within the original Legend of Zelda, right, and immersion within Pokemon immersion within dwarf romance right (laughs) all of these are immersive because they give you a world to play in right they give you the mechanics and the systems and you buy into those yeah and and the buying into the world is really sort of the key component because you can have an invert the immersive environment that isn't necessarily doesn't really have very high like graphic fidelity i mean Probably one of the most broadly popular, like, immersive games would be Minecraft. And the the graphics in that game are really, really simple. I mean, you can mod it to be, like, a lot prettier and so forth. But in its original iterations, the whole point was to, like, throw all of the effort into, like, the underlying systems, particularly in the way in which it sort of, like, procedurally generates, like, chunks of the world. Like, that was the fundamental thing that Minecraft did. Um, but in order to have like the processing power in order to be able to do that on the fly, because it does, because it runs in Java, strangely enough, <laughs> um, the, the the actual like textures and the 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 models for like the, the, the in-game like NPCs and the trees and the blocks and so forth, like had to be fairly simplistic in order to have in order for like the underlying systems that will need a lot of processing power to be able to run. And like that game is still incredibly immersive despite that sort of lack of graphic fidelity precisely because it gives you so many things to do. Like at any point in playing Minecraft, like even if you're sort of like engaged in like, you know, building a house or like digging down into a mine or like finding creepers or going after Endermen so you can get Ender Pearls, like it always has this panoply of things that you can keep doing. And it's almost like perfectly designed for someone with ADHD because like you, you can do one task and then you can do another task and you can do another task and you can do another task. And But that is a kind of immersion because it's catering, the game is catered in its systems, mind you. And that's the important point. You really, in fact, in many ways, 
people should be talking to the engineers a lot more, or at least to the systems designers, because it is at the systems level where a lot of this stuff plays out. Where sort of the where to me at least the core of immersive gameplay comes from. And the problem is that when you ask like creative directors or when you ask like, you know, the writers what because it's the problem of like the thing that I do is the most important. <laughs> and so if you're the creative director, then like the thing that you do is going to be considered the most important. And so because it's an unfortunate stereotype, but it's one that is based in truth, like, you know, engineers tend to be a little bit more closed off they tend to be more like you know keep their head down and do their work it's like well and, not, I, and i will yeah. i will say the reason why it is a stereotype as well is because i mean back in the like to give contextual history because we have to understand that society creates these stereotypes yeah, not that true. those individuals are actually closed off yeah. it is that society at you know at one point it was like oh you're in engineering and you want to work in computers do you want to work for ibm microsoft or like Apple and probably not <laughs> Apple because Apple's not very good, right? This <laughs> yeah, is way back yeah, in the maybe. day, okay? Yeah. At, at one point in time. Now it's IBM who? Uh, I don't want to <laughs> be IBM still tech. exists. Yeah, Microsoft, which is every game studio anyway. And Apple, but does Apple have games? Question mark, which is funny. That's a different episode. No, I thought, Embrace, yes, I thought Embracer was every game studio. Oh, they're no, trying it's still to be. My, it's still, they're trying to be. They're actually yeah. still small, but it's do you want to work for, right? Microsoft, 2K, Sony, yeah, 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 Embracer, yeah, yeah. Square, exactly, exactly, yeah. et cetera, right? So now like your options are much bigger, right? Games are more ubiquitous. But if you wanted to work in computing, people thought of it as tech jobs that you held for 20 years, yeah. right? Not here's a studio and you get there after two years and people are like, okay, where are you going next? Yeah. And so I think that this is important because society, especially with engineering, right, has shown to like, hey, you're on the weird fringe of society. Go out and be isolated. Oh, yeah. engineering and code is really novel. Not a, not a lot of people know how to do it. And in order to do it, you really do need quiet focus time. Yeah. Go and go have your quiet focus time. Yeah. Oh, this is great. You created something awesome. But also with engineering, right? They've been conditioned, or I've seen some engineers make these incredible systems. And then suddenly the designers are like, look at this cool thing that I've done with your system. But the designer gets all the credit for it because yeah. it just looks sexy on screen, right? Yeah. So I think that... Uh, in some ways, right, because they've been pushed to the background, it's not necessarily because they are background people. Yeah. It is that the constructs of our production methods have either pushed them while they're at the front of the pipeline, they're also pushed into the, the background because no one's like, wow, your lines are commented so well. Yeah. You're there like, <laughs> wow, your code didn't let my artwork, so you've got to fix that. Does yeah. that make sense? So just to give clarity, because why, I don't why want game, anyone... Why game no compile? <laughs> yeah, why game no compile? Why no build? Okay. Oh, man. I heard some horror stories about building the other day, where, like, yeah, apparently yeah. if the CD ejected itself, you knew that the build failed. Or, like, <laughs> or, like that's how you knew it was successful or something, right? Way back yeah. in the day. And then you didn't. You came back the next day and were like, shoot, the CD's still in the drive. The build yeah. failed. Right. And I'm like, wow. <laughs> so that's what I'm talking about. OK. Yeah. Well, like, OK. But it's yeah. interesting because and the reason why. So, you know, Lauren and I both love our nuts and bolts people. We both love engineers. We love system design. Lauren is a systems designer, so she better love them or else that's weird. Um, but the thing is, <laughs> in many ways, like the experience that Lauren just described of sort of like you know, you engineer go off and write your lines of code by yourself. And like that in many ways is sort of kind of the simulacrum of the immersive experience itself. 
like in many like because a lot of people who write code oftentimes speak of something that Lauren has already mentioned, which is this concept of flow and the idea that you need to sort of like segregate yourself from the rest of the world to get into a flow. And that can last, you know, hours and hours and hours sometimes. And so there does seem to be an interesting correlation between these two concepts. And it's one of the reasons why we wanted to focus on the more like mechanical systems based things. So, Lauren, I know you wanted to talk about flow, so I'm not going to do too much of it myself and I'm going to hand it back to you. So what, what do you mean when you say flow? So when I say flow, I, I mean, I tend to simplify definitions to make them more translatable and understandable for like the average human because I am the average human. <laughs> um, and for me, when I talk about flow, I talk about the immersed, like getting completely immersed into an activity or a, in, in any activity, I guess is what I should say, whether it's like brewing coffee, yeah. playing music, playing a game, right? That is so immersive to your experience and so all encompassing of your senses that you become the activity. And so what yeah. I mean by that is when I'm playing, um, like when you're playing Final Fantasy or you're reading a book, I think yeah. for me, reading a book is going to be better because when I read a book, I am completely immersed in that story. And I think that flow for the human brain doesn't have to be something that's so highly cognitive, like playing the violin or learning a new piano piece. Yeah. Flow could be as simple as every single time you turn the page of your favorite novel, you have to keep reading. Like I'm one of the people that when I started a Harry Potter book when I was a kid, I read that the entire day until I finished it. And so yeah. I am a fast reader because I was so immersed in reading that my brain could not shut off until yeah. the reading was done. And I wasn't always like this. It wasn't until like I, like, I mean, I, when you, because uh, when you're learning reading as a child, right, like you get tired after a while, I guess yeah. if that makes sense. Yeah. But I got so invested in some of the stories that I started to read that I suddenly, especially with manga, like I had to keep turning the page. I'd go to Books books A Million or Barnes & Noble or whatever bookstores you children now read. I just download text in my brain. I don't know what these things are. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, so in your download text chips, yep. uh, like I just completely, right, I would get so immersed that like two hours would go by. And that's what we did as a family. We'd go to like uh, a bookstore and, and read uh, until they were like, you should buy something. And then we'd buy something and then we'd get kicked out. And then the next weekend we'd go back. And, <laughs> read. and it's actually because funnily enough, we lived in such rural areas where the libraries weren't as good as the bookstores. Um, just so that we can, we can be clear. Yeah. And cause that's just, you know, that's how the United States. Well, also because uh, so a little, a little history program. of libraries for the people out there. Um, library, public libraries developed very unevenly in the U S and generally, um, the more south you get and more into what is considered the south, uh, public libraries tend to be far worse because they were yes. largely a northeast phenomenon and then spread into the Midwest and then only like much later spread into the south. Yeah. And so uh, so sorry that I'm like getting a bit on a long winded tangent about <laughs> what I mean by flow because you were on a flow. I, you were on a, you, you were in the I flow was in flow because yeah, I was flowing. Yeah. I was actually in flow. I think what's really interesting, though, is the reason why I bring that up is that it's not just reading for you. It could be watching a Netflix series and you binge the whole series that night. For yeah. me, I would consider that flow because you have been so immersed by the storytelling, right? In the provocations of that series that you now are so invested that you feel like you cannot exit that um, technology. You cannot exit that experience without ripping something, right? Like it yeah. feels bad to stop watching a Netflix series. It feels bad to put the book down. 
it feels bad to stop playing Yakuza like a dragon. It feels <laughs> bad, right? To separate yourself from these experiences, right? Yeah. Or you're playing Pokemon and it's 10 hours later. Yeah. And I know that there's something where people, we also talk in the ADHD and neurodivergent community about hyperfocus. And what I don't want to do is to extrapolate hyperfocus as a cognizant of flow. Flow is different yeah. than, say, using your ADHD to yeah. hyperfocus. Yes. And so I think that for me, just already separating that out, because those of you who know me and follow me on Twitter or have worked with me, recognize that there is a trait of hyperfocus. That is different than flow. Yeah. Because when I reach myself out of hyperfocus, it's more of like relief and like it's done and I can move on, right? Yeah. But when you reach yourself out of flow, you're like, I need to get back. I need to get back. I need to get back. Right. And yeah, I think yeah. that's the difference for me. So thank you for listening to Lauren's like tangent and <laughs> which gave us the history of the library um, <laughs> in typical, right? Neurodivergent fashion. Uh, there we go. So for me, I do not like when developers say that immersion is on one side versus flow. Yeah. I think that flow in of itself requires immersion in order yeah. to have and achieve flow. Yeah. But that means that depending on the play style, like Nicholas mentioned previously in this episode, that the play style determines how you achieve that flow. Yeah. And of that, right, those systems, right, are directly, right, how the world reacts to you. That's world building, yeah. right, in a systemic way. And then the translation of that system to the world, right? And then how you engage with it is what then determines the immersion. And it's how those pieces work together that yeah. does it get you quickly into flow or does it take you a long time to get into flow? And I think yeah. that time to get to flow ratio, whatever that is mathematically, is what then critics and journalists who are probably still talking to creative directors or narrative designers, right? But yeah. how quickly that we as the human populace as a gaming community can recognize this is a slow to flow ratio versus this is a fast to flow ratio. Yeah. Things that are fast to flow in, are then like coefficient as like really high immersive engaging activities or yeah. games just because we at a glance can go, this is highly immersive. Yeah. And then when we get the game, because it has hyper-realistic graphics, and then we notice a couple of bugs, we're like, man, I'm totally like, I'm not immersed anymore. So I'm probably like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, versus, right, when you get something like Pokemon, even when it first came out, right, Pokemon Red and Blue, yeah. it was like the fast-to-flow ratio was like immediate. But yes. like the graphics weren't there. So you were like, oh, this is incredible. Versus some people can get immersed in civilization or can't or don't, right? And that could yeah, have yeah, a yeah. slow to flow ratio for some people because they don't know what to expect. But then over time, realize now that I've built up my armies, I've built up my civilization, I've like been playing this game and I've invested like, you know, tens of hours. Oh my gosh, this would be hundreds of hours. You yeah. see, an MMO is traditionally what a lot of people would consider a high immersive experience depending on how it gets there but is a very slow to flow ratio like you have to get through a bunch of yeah, stuff because a lot of mmos can be really tedious in terms of like the like the core gameplay loop that they put before you the whole idea of like you know this quest where you collect these things and then this quest where you collect these things um i want to go back to the so i i there's two things i want to talk about one of which i'll probably leave for the patreon episode so sorry guys you're just gonna have to buy <laughs> um but the play style question so it's it's interesting because this is a callback to not our very first episode but probably our second or third episode in which we talked about um vanderberg's player types and 
Lauren, at that time, you had mentioned that one of his frustrations was that he couldn't find a game that corresponded to, because he was using Ocean, so the neurotic type. But then we actually, like, I think demonstrated pretty conclusively, like, no, actually, there are games that appeal to neurotics, because I'm myself neurotic, and there are games that appeal to me. Um, and it's precisely the games that um, I mentioned way back at the beginning of the episode. It's those games where you sort of like want to like manage things, keep them in order, maintain control, like constant, constantly tinkering with little things, planning ahead and so forth. Those games are very different from shooters where planning, I mean, you can do a bit of planning, but it's much more reactive. Like things happen and you react, things happen and you react. And so when it goes back to what Lauren was saying about like, quick immersion like quick to be immersed like those tend to take the form of those more action-oriented games or more i guess i should say reactive games where like the flow comes from the fact that you're constantly engaged with another like objective task enemy like however you want to characterize it there's always another thing that you have to do and another thing you have to do and another thing you have to do whereas this other type that we're talking about which appeals to sort of more neurotic play styles are ones where you like in order to play them most effectively you really need to plan and to think ahead like or several turns in advance chess is like this as well chess is now like at at the highest highest levels is fundamentally dependent upon like how far ahead you can think in terms of your moves because it's like i'm making this one now this move now because this move corresponds to the plan that i have for say like 16 moves down the road and it's oh all- my god and that's why i can't play chess because i can't <laughs> think ahead and that's not true as i'm very good at planning milestones or planning yeah. like high level feature plans but if someone's like hey think ahead what you need to do on this system i would be like i'm going to take five times more energy <laughs> that out. i totally yeah. get it now because my dad tried to get yeah. me to play chess and i was yeah. just like i can't i physically cannot play this game and so I would yeah, just move. I, I played I played chess competitively when I was a kid, but I think it, it's it's so there is a bit of a chicken and the egg problem. It's like was I neurotic because I played chess, or, or, or was that like the the sort of the act of like playing chess constantly making me neurotic? I don't know. But I actually want to really like hone in on the whole playing chess argument here to really illustrate what Nicholas is trying to say with like the neuroticism point. With uh, and if you haven't watched uh, the Big Five, Jason Vanderbur's GDC talk on the types of play styles, I will link it. I will link it. Yeah, it will be linked in the description below. Please, like, go out. Uh, we're almost done with the episode, so finish this episode. Go cue that up on YouTube, um, and then go listen to it after it, because it is a really fantastic talk. And I want to hone in on this neurotic point, is that we as even a society, right, the way that these personalities develop is because we as a human race have seen patterns in personalities. And we also have ascribed, right, our own societies, like cultural kind of mentalities and constraints, onto personalities and onto these what are then mapped into player styles because at the end of the day neuroticism is a type of personality spectrum trait you could say are you or are you not neurotic yeah it could be similar to saying are you anxious or are you not anxious are you a worrier or not a worrier are you a calculating person or do you not calculate are you impulsive yeah right and that right everyone falls along somewhere in that spectrum no one is 100 percent impulsive no one is 100% right neurotic. I'm sure people would be like 99 and I'm sure people could be zero or one, right? Yeah. But there would be some things that you think ahead on, like what do I need to eat for breakfast? And even if that thought is 30 minutes later versus 30 hours later, just so that we can illustrate what is neuroticism, yeah. right? Nicholas's point on chess is really important for me um, because chess is also something we ascribe to people who are incredibly neurotic. Right. Or people who, you know, if you think of like the geeks, right, 
in yeah. school, they're always yeah. playing chess, yeah. right? The pocket protectors, the, yeah. And, and it sucks because that's in, and this is an American Western. So for any of us who's listening or listeners or outside of America. Yeah, because chess is cool now. Like, yeah, because chess is cool who, now, yeah, apparently. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but before it used to not be cool. But no. <laughs> see, here's the thing, right? Is that regardless, right? It takes that persistence, that patience, that ability to think ahead. Like everybody's yeah. like sitting on a board when you could be playing sports, right? <laughs> like yeah. that's that's the mentality. Yeah. And I want to bring into that because that's a type of play style, right? Yep. Competitive sports, team-based sports versus a solo, right, effort are just two different play styles that we have in our culture already. But yep. when we ascribe them to games, right? Like Valorant is a very different type of experience than um, than civilization. I was yep. going to put some, I didn't know what to quite put into chest yet. <laughs> but then I was like, it's kind of like Civ. Like you do have to yeah. think ahead with your yeah. turns like yes, constantly. I can't play Civ. I'm okay at Valorant, but I'm not really into team sports anyway. Like that are kind of against other teams. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. So that in of it right there is like a little different. Yeah. And so I think we want to close things out there because, like, one, it's we're past time now. So, so there's that. But also, um, if you want to, we're going to continue this discussion in our Patreon episode. So if you want to hear more about sort of like the history of specific games that were deemed to be immersive, why they were deemed to be immersive, and also get into more sort of the thorny theoretical questions about why that is and how it's evolved over time, we'll be discussing it there. You can sign up for $5 a month on Patreon. It's patreon.com slash foodidashi. Um, and if you want to sort of like communicate with us directly about, you know, future topics, or if you have questions that maybe you're a burgeoning game designer and you want to pick our brains, sign up for the $15 level and join our discord. And literally we respond immediately because we're both you and I are constantly on discord basically. Yes. Um, <laughs> but until... with, that, <laughs> with that, thank you guys. And until we see you on the discord, have an amazing thing, do your homework and stay safe.